Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Right now, Donald Trump's language is sounding a lot like someone from history. And I'm not talking about someone that most of you would admire. And as alarming as the rhetoric is, the things he's planning to do should he win re-election are even more disturbing. During his three decades in journalism, Jonathan Carl has earned his reputation as one of the best reporters in Washington. He's tough. I should know. I spent years fielding tough questions from him. And if he is sounding the alarm, which he is, we should all be listening. His new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, is out tomorrow. It serves as a roadmap of what we can expect from Donald Trump if he ever re-enters the Oval Office. And he's going to take us inside all of that in just a moment. Also later tonight, John Favreau and Tommy Vitor, my former colleagues, they're a Pod Save America frame now. They're going to talk about how President Biden should campaign against a fully authoritarian opponent, because that's what we're talking about right now. And later, Congressman Adam Schiff joins me on the deafening silence from his Republican colleagues. A new Supreme Court code of ethics out today and breaking news just tonight on what former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis is telling prosecutors in Georgia and what that all means. But first, Let's go back to that historical figure Trump seems to admire so much. This weekend, Trump vowed to root out what he called the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. That's an exact quote. For the students of history out there, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it echoes the language of Adolf Hitler. As he told the Czech foreign minister, among many others, this was language he used frequently, quote, this vermin must be destroyed. Look. Lots of things Trump says are shocking. They are shocking on a daily basis. But it's important to pause on this for a moment, because the former president, who's also the current frontrunner for the Republican nomination and very much could end up back in the Oval Office, is mirroring the dangerous rhetoric Hitler used during the Holocaust. And this wasn't even an isolated incident. In an interview last month, just last month, Trump used graphic dehumanizing language against undocumented immigrants accusing them of, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Again, that's the kind of language Hitler used in Mein Kampf when he wrote, quote, all great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning. When asked about Trump's rhetoric and how it echoes dictators like Hitler and Mussolini, which it clearly does, his spokesperson said today that for those who claim that it does, which it clearly does, their sad, miserable existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. That sounds like something Hitler or Mussolini's spokesperson would say. But here's the thing. It's not just Trump's fascist language or his fascist ideation, which he clearly has. The piece that should really scare the hell out of everyone are his actual plans. Because as scary as all of this talk is, the plans are even scarier. And that's especially important to pay attention to when he is very much within reach of regaining the White House. Here's just a taste, a little taste, because there's lots, I can't cover all of it tonight, of the unmistakably fascist plans Trump has in store. Locking up his political opponents, 
prosecuting officials at the FBI and DOJ, using the Insurrection Act to go after peaceful demonstrators, preparing for sweeping raids, sprawling camps, and mass deportations of immigrants. And yeah, there's even new reporting today. There's like everyday new reporting. Reporting from Axios today about his plans to install a pre-vetted army of roughly 50,000 loyalists to centralize and expand his power across every level of government. In this moment, when Trump is using fascist language, which he frequently is, and laying out fascist plans for the White House, it's important to know how we arrived here. It's important to know that this is not just a threat of the past. This threat is very much still present right now. As Jonathan Carl writes in his book, whatever guardrails may have existed before are gone. He no longer has people of stature around him who are willing to defy his demands and to protect the nation from his most destructive instinct. But it's more than that. It's that his destructive instincts are even more destructive than they were in January of 2021. And joining me now is ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. He's the author of the new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. So let me start with, I read this book. It did not take me long. It's a really amazing in-depth read, and I highly recommend it. But there's an argument out there that Trump has always been this way. You hear Republicans say this, you hear some of his advisors say this, that the behavior we see today is the Donald Trump we should have all always known. Reading this book, it sounds like you disagree with that notion. Uh, I do. I mean, look, there are elements that he, he's always been like. He's always been obsessed with himself. He's always been willing uh, to lie, to prop himself up. Uh, but Donald Trump of 2023 is not the same guy that came into the White House uh, in, in 2017. Uh, he is more divorced from reality. He is more uh, undeterred to, to do whatever is on his mind. I think one of the biggest factors here um, is that all the guardrails are gone. When he came into the White House, there were people that came with him mm. who felt it was their duty to try to keep him, protect him and protect the country from his most destructive impulses, which were always clearly there. Those people are gone. Uh, the people that you know, tried to, to, to steer him in the White House counsel's office, like Don McGahn or Pat Cipollone are gone. Uh, people like General Mattis, John Kelly, they're gone. Anybody who tried to do anything to hold him back is now gone. It is Trump and his most sycophantic supporters that are with him now. You have a rather stunning detail you talk about in the book. It's about an order Trump to this point that you just made, signed to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, which is a massively consequential decision. Yeah. I don't have to tell anyone. And yet the document was effectively forged by Trump's body man uh, with no input from military or national security advisors. You write, quote, the president of the United States couldn't get the people he appointed to care carry out his policies because he couldn't be bothered to learn how to implement them. I mean, you referenced having kind of a protective group of people who are trying to prevent him from his behavior in a first term. What do you think a second term would look like? Well, at the end, this was Johnny McEntee, his uh, personnel uh, director, who was originally the guy that carried his bag, yes. the body guy. He was promoted, uh, to be yes, fair. Yes, he was promoted, but he kept the body guy job. So yeah. he had his uh, desk right outside the Oval Office and was always with Trump, but was also responsible for the largest uh, and most important HR department in the federal government, uh, hiring and firing of 4,000 political appointees throughout the executive branch. And McEntee, uh, after uh, Trump lost the election, 
administration uh, set out to remake the Defense Department. It was him uh, who uh, went through and helped Trump decapitate Mark Esper and the top leadership and install people that would do exactly what Trump wanted. And he actually ends up writing this order, which we've known about in the past. Mm -hmm. But what I learned is, is that he was literally trying to figure out how to do it by going on Googling. Googling and then, and then, and then uh, D Doug McGregor, this guy that they put over as, as, uh, as the advisor for the new defense secretary, says, just go to the file cabinet and get out an old executive order and look at the format and copy the format. Um, and he writes, it's not just to withdraw from Afghanistan, by the way. It's also to withdraw U.S. troops from Germany, yeah. to withdraw uh, U.S. troops uh, from the Middle East. I mean, it's, it's a massively consequential order. Eventually, it was brought down, but it caused chaos over the over the course of, of, of several days at the Pentagon. It reminded me just of what we've seen of this forum shopping to find staffers and lawyers, frankly, who agree with what Trump wants to do. And there was some element that wasn't that way in the first term, but feels like it could be in the second. I mean, part of this, we, we recently heard Trump, I mean, just over the last couple of days, uh, indict his political opponents. I say he's threatened he was going to indict his political opponents. He said he was rooting, he wanted to root out the vermin of the left. That's literally the term he used. Um, he has extreme positions on a range of issues, of course. But what, is, what do you make of these kind of increasing threats? It feels a little like the authoritarian uh, wiles of him are increasing, but what do you make of it? It's, it's, a, it's a central theme of my book, which is, and this is also something that is different. Uh, there is a coherent idea now behind Trump's re-election campaign. I don't know if there was always a coherent idea besides I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I'm mm -hmm. going to build the wall, all that stuff. Now it is retribution. As I uh, point out, uh, Steve Bannon, who has become, a, a, once again, an incredibly important advisor to Donald Trump, uh, talks about the come retribution speech, which launched his, which basically relaunched his presidential campaign at the time of that first rally in Waco, Texas, mm -hmm. of all places. He goes to Waco, Texas, where the Branch Davidians had their showdown uh, with, uh, with, with, with federal law enforcement back in, in 1993. The, the, basically, the inspiration for the armed right-wing militia movement, that's where he goes to launch his campaign. And it is about retribution. It's about seeking out his enemies. And that quote that you just cited about vermin, we're going mm -hmm. gonna, to we're gonna get the vermin, I mean, that is Nazi imagery. Now, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is a Nazi, but those are the, that is the, the imagery language of, used of, by, by yes. Adolf Hitler. And there's a story in this book that I learned from, this is from a very senior member of Congress, close ally of Donald Trump told me about this, uh, that on at least two occasions, Trump told him about a story about Angela Merkel, the uh, then chancellor of Germany. You know, she told me that, uh, she, that, that, she only heard only one person has ever gotten crowds as big as me. That only one person could attract the crowds. And this is the chancellor of Germany mm -hmm. saying Trump, that there's only one other. And, you know, Trump never says who it is. But, I mean, it's, and he's bragging about this. Mm -hmm. It's the admiration for these figures, current and in history, who yeah. are abhorrent to most people. One of the things that was so striking to me about the book is we've spent, we spent, we all spent so much time talking about the events of January 6th, right? The events leading up to January 6th, hugely important, consequential, horrible time in history. But you talk a lot in this book about what happened after that, including the fact that Trump, a full six months after Biden's inauguration, seemed to think that he could be reinstated. And we have a little audio uh, from your interview we're going to play, and then I want to talk to you about it. 
By the way, when you had a release recently, you said 2024 or before. What, what, what do you mean by that? You, you don't really think there's a way you would get reinstated before the next election. I'm not going to explain it to you, Jonathan, because you, uh, you wouldn't either understand it or write it. I mean, that, 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 this is incredible, and this is one of the things. For all the, all the things that you saw over the course of the Trump presidency, this one really stood out to me for the post-presidency. Mm -hmm. Mike Lindell, the MyPillow election-denying you know, guy, he, he was out saying that Trump was going to be reinstated, and he had an oddly specific date. He said August 13th This was right before that, shortly before. And this was right before that. I figured this was like a QAnon wacky thing that was out there. I, but but I saw this press release that he had put out, and it wasn't a press release about it. It was about something else, and then he, it was actually criticizing NBC. Mm -hmm. uh, but the last lines of it were 2024 or before, and that's why I asked if he... And, and you can see, he's like, I'm not going to explain it to you. So he's not denying it. But what I found is he was actively pursuing this. He was talking about it with everybody who would listen privately, um, and he seemed to truly believe that there was going to be a series of steps that would happen in these states that he lost, and that Donald Trump was going to be able to go back into the White House, Joe Biden was going to be evicted, and that there's, there's a story. I mean, it's not, by the way, just six months. Because what I learned is that... That interview was about six months Yes, later. yes. But it kept on going on yes. into, into last year, into 2022. He actually went to Mo Brooks, who he had endorsed running for Senate... Uh, in Alabama. Who's quite conservative, I think people Mo, should Mo be. Mo Brooks, I mean, let, let's put it this way. He wore body armor right. to, the, to the speech outside the White House on January 6th. He was the first guy to lead the objections in Congress to Biden's certification. So anyway, so Mo Brooks, he, he called Mo Brooks up and, um, again, on an unannounced call, and Mo Brooks told me he picked it up, and, and he made a series of four demands of him. Uh, and the demands were all related to this reinstatement thing. He wanted Brooks to go out and call on Biden to be removed from the White House, call for a rerunning of the election, and, uh, and for Trump to be reinstated as president. And Mo Brooks, again, in a pretty extreme Trump diehard, yeah. said, no, that's unconstitutional. I can't do it. And Trump then a few days later withdrew his endorsement. But this is what was going on. He really thought that something was going to happen, the cyber ninjas audit in Arizona and everything else, that it was all going to come to this big culminating moment and he was going to go back into the White House. You talked to a lot of people and you've kept in touch with, I think, a lot of people who worked for him or yeah. worked around him. And another really fascinating detail in your book is you mentioned an anonymous former high-level official in the Trump White House, somebody close to him, you yep. describe it as, who shared his reflections with you after Trump was indicted. And he said, quote, and I'm going to read this because it's kind of jarring. Uh, he lacks a, any shred of human decency, humility, or caring. He is morally bankrupt, breathtakingly dishonest, lethally incompetent, and stunningly ignorant of virtually anything related to government, history, geography, human events, or world affairs. He is a traitor and a malignancy in our nation and represents a clear and present danger to our democracy and the rule of law. I mean, that is quite a statement for somebody who has yeah. spent time close to and around the former president. And that was a something he wrote down relatively recently. Yes, this and this is somebody who served more than a year at a very high level inside the West Wing, uh, 
very close to Donald Trump, not somebody that went out publicly and repeated the lies about the election. He's not one of those people, but he's also not somebody who has publicly come out to, to condemn Trump either. So it's not one of what they would call the usual suspects. This is somebody who served him, served him loyally uh, for more than a year. And it gets to a fundamental truth about Donald Trump, and that is the most piercing and searing criticism of him. The people that are sounding the alarm loudest about what a second Trump term would mean are those who were closest to him. Some of them have gone public. Uh, people like John Kelly uh, have, have gone public to, to, to make this point. A lot of them have not. Uh, this is a very... And you might ask, well, why don't they come out? Why doesn't this person come out and, 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 and sound I would have publicly? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good question now that you asked, Jen. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what, what he told me is uh, that he... Frankly, he fears the retribution, not from just... From Trump. From Trump. Not, and Trump and Trump's people. Not just to him, uh, but to his family. Um, and he, this person has gone on, is not directly active in politics right now, uh, I think is quite chastened from this experience. Um, and you saw those words, uh, really warning about not just what Trump was like, but what it would be like if he came back. Jonathan Carl, this book, Tired of Winning, is a huge wake-up call, has many, many details included in it. I really enjoyed reading it. It's out tomorrow and available wherever you get your books. Thank you so much for joining Thank me. Thank you, Jen. Coming up, breaking news out of Fulton County, Georgia. New video of confidential interviews with two Trump co-defendants has just surfaced tonight. We're going to play that and get reaction from Congressman Adam Schiff. But first, now we know what Donald Trump's plans are if he retakes the White House. The question is, what are Democrats going to do about it? Today, we got a hint. My friends John Favreau and Tommy Vitor of Pods. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. America, join me next. So you may remember the last time a Democratic president ran for re-election from the White House. I definitely do. Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee, and there are some similarities, definitely, heading into the 2024 election. There was a definite freakout over the polls in the fall of 2011, as there are today, and many predictions that then-President Obama was toast. Of course, as we all know, President Obama was not toast, actually. But while the policy debates back then about issues like the economy and immigration and health care were very front and center, they're still important today. But next year's election is definitely not the 2024 version of a policy debate with Mitt Romney. Those are kind of the good old days, I hate to tell you. Next year is about the survival of the American experiment. And few things make that reality more evident than a new statement from the White House today, where they called out their likely opponent, Donald Trump, 
for using the language of authoritarian dictators like Hitler and Mussolini. The question now is, how can the Biden campaign successfully run against him? John Favreau is a former speechwriter for President Obama. Tommy Vitor served as spokesman for the National Security Council in the Obama White House. We all worked together in the good old days against the Romney campaign. They are co-hosts of the podcast Pod Save America and co-hosts of the upcoming book, Democracy or Else, How to Save America in 10 Easy Steps. And they join me now. So, John, I'm going to start with you, because this is, I mean, this is a full circle moment kind of for President Biden. I mean, he started his 2020 campaign with an announcement video about the white nationalist march at Charlottesville. If anything, Donald Trump has only become more dangerous. I mean, we're, we're literally here talking about him echoing Hitler and Mussolini. That's the conversation we're having, because it's so important for people to know about. But I think the question here is, I mean, what should the Biden campaign—they had a statement from the White House. But what should the campaign be doing about it? It's almost whack-a-mole with how many crazy things and horrifying things are coming out of Trump's mouth. It is, but I think—I was glad to see the statement come out of the White House and a statement from the campaign. I actually think that, that the president should address this next time mm. he has the chance to do so. And I, I realize it's probably hard to do that from the Rose Garden or the White House, but next time he's at a campaign event, I'm sure a reporter's going to ask him about it, because I think that nothing clearly— lays out the stakes of this election more than what Trump said in that speech and what he's planning to do and the plans he's laid out. And Joe Biden, from the moment, like you said, from the moment he ran, uh, decided to run and talked about Charlottesville, this his his life in in politics has been about, you know, making sure that uh, we're in a fight for the soul of the nation and that we're trying to save democracy. And it's never been more important than now. And I think he has to lay out those stakes very clearly and as often as possible. So, Tommy, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he has to have a stump speech, right, for his campaign. He's going to start to campaign much more. But there's a lot to touch on here. I mean, what should he—how should he approach this from the campaign? How should Biden be talking about it on the campaign trail? Yeah, I mean, Jen, because I'm a masochist, I watched that entire event that Trump did in New Hampshire. That is that a masochistic thing to do. Hour, <laughs> it came one hour and 44 minutes into this speech. So there's mm -hmm. a lot to work with, is the point. Um, I, I will say— the Vermin quote was something he read off a teleprompter. It was his closing argument. So that was clearly something yeah. that he wanted to get covered. He wanted to get picked up. He wanted liberals to freak out about. Uh, and then so his little spokesman can, you know, criticize the libs for getting worked up or whatever they do. I, I think the point you made at the top is exactly right. The rhetoric is really bad and should be called out, but the plans are even worse. He wants to bring back the Muslim ban. He wants mm. to get rid of DACA. He wants to use the military to deport migrants. Uh, and like Jonathan Carl was saying in your interview before, all the reasonable people are gone. It's going to be all mm -hmm. Stephen Miller's next time. So I do think talking about the choice, highlighting what Trump would do in a second term is the is critical because people we, look, we don't have long memories in this country. We've forgotten a lot of the worst things he did. John, one of the—I th mean, the Republican primary is at, like, the dumpster fire stage. I think we can all agree on that. It's it's watching the debate yeah. and just watching them go back and forth. But kind of one of the things they started to do is call out not Donald Trump's insane Hitler echoing language. They're not doing that. But they are calling out kind of his incomprehensible way he's communicating. Um, a lot of the candidates are. Do you think that's something that Democrats should be doing more, that Biden should be doing? It's not really Biden's brand, but what should be happening with that from the Biden campaign side? Yeah, look, I think the Biden campaign has been uh, tweeting a lot of the videos where, you know, Trump 
mistakes Biden for Obama, and he has like a whole bunch of these verbal gaffes. And uh, Trump's crazy. He says crazy things all the time. But, you know, I think I, I was struck by the quote that uh, Jonathan Carl uh, had in his book from someone, a senior White House official who had worked with Trump that said he can be lethally incompetent, right? So he can be a scary wannabe dictator and a clown. He can be both of those things. Mm -hmm. And so I do, and and the truth is, like, even if he accomplishes like 5% of what he sets out to do in some of these plans, it would still plunge the country into chaos. And so whether or not he's a clown, he was a clown before January 6th and then January 6th happened. So I think that you, I think it's important to highlight the fact that he is, it says crazy shit all the time, crazy things all the time, but also to really, really identify these plans, like Tommy was saying, and that this, look, what he wants to do is he wants to arrest his political opponents. He wants to ban people who disagree with him from working anywhere in the federal government. He wants to use the military against protesters. He wants to shoot suspected shoplifters, kill people who are caught selling drugs, round up immigrant families and put them into camps. I mean, I think the Democrats and, and President Biden just have to put all of these plans in terms that people can understand and make sure people understand how Donald Trump would affect their lives if he gets a second term. term. So it's not just about the extreme rhetoric. It's about what he intends to do and plans to do. Apologize for the rhetoric for the families at home. These are podcast guys. I'll say that first. Um, Tommy, I'm going <laughs> to end with you. <laughs> Clean it up, guys. I'm Tommy, and I end with you. I mean, Democrats also need to figure out how they're going to kind of run against Trump and run against candidates who are in the party of Trump. What should they be doing? It's not the same as Biden giving a speech, but what should candidates doing her be doing who are running for office trying to take back seats? Yeah, I mean, first, I'd like to denounce my friend John and just let everyone know that I don't stand with him. I stand with you. I'm the thing keeping you from getting whatever. Um, I, look, it, it, as part of that insane New Hampshire speech, Trump also said, I am an election denier. He yelled that. It was a big applause line. Everybody loved it. I think that's a pretty useful quote for Democrats mm -hmm. as we run ads against Donald Trump. I think it's a very useful quote for the DSCC or the Democrats running for the House of Representatives to ask their opponents if they agree with that, if they support that line. And I think, look, we also had that uh, New York Times poll last week about President Biden and the subsequent, I think, understandable uh, anxiety in the sort of Democratic operative class. They're going to have to get uh, these messages to young voters, voters of color, mm -hmm. through paid media campaigns. I think yeah. most folks who are, are not paying attention right now, they're not reading Politico as much as we all love Jonathan Martin and his, his piece this morning, but they're going to have to reach them through paid media and highlight some of these messages. That's where they'll see a lot. That tells you what the campaign thinks. I've never heard either of you swear outside of on the podcast, so that's what your mom should also know. But thank you both for joining me, uh, John Favreau and Tommy Vitor. Up next, we didn't have time to talk about it in our interview, but Jonathan Carl gave us some audio of Donald Trump that has never aired before, and it provides a window into his relationship with the Republican establishment. We're going to play that next. And later, Congressman Adam Schiff joins me on some breaking news out of Fulton County, Georgia. I'll ask him about video of confidential interviews with two Trump co-defendants just out tonight. We're back after a quick break. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So you may not remember this piece of reporting back from November of 2021. A lot has happened since then, to be fair. But according to Jonathan Carl's reporting for his book, Betrayal, his last book, on his last day in office, shortly after boarding Air Force One, Donald Trump spoke with Republican Party Chair Ronna McDaniel and delivered some pretty uncomfortable news. He told McDaniel he was leaving the GOP and creating his own political party, threatening to destroy the Republican Party altogether. Well, ahead of the release of his new book, Jonathan Carl shared with us the audio from an interview he had with Trump when he asked him about that call. This is something that has not aired before, and we found it interesting because Trump's response says a lot about his fraught relationship with the GOP. When you got on the plane, you had a call from Ronna McDaniel. Do you recall, do you re recall that phone conversation? No. Because uh, you, you would— What did she say? Uh, the, you, what did uh, she say? that you told her you were going to leave the Republican Party. This is the sickest thing I've ever heard. It never says any such thing. You mean I was going to form another party or yes. something? Yes, yes. Oh, that's bull****. Okay, never happened. Now, as you heard, Trump denied pretty vehemently there that he has ever said anything like that. The RNC actually tried to deny it, too, until Carl reminded them that his source had confirmed the story in a recorded interview. It's very awkward. It shows you just how uncomfortable Donald Trump's relationship with the party's establishment has been. And yet, Trump and the Republican Party have not split at all. Despite four criminal indictments and increasingly unhinged and authoritarian language, the party has stuck by him, completely by him. And that was made clear yet again when RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel refused to condemn or even comment on Trump's incendiary remarks on Veterans Day, when he referred to his political opponents as vermin. Are you comfortable with this language coming from the GOP frontrunner? Again, I am not going to comment on candidates and their campaign messaging. I mean, first of all, commenting on candidates and their campaign messaging is literally the job of the RNC chair. That is literally your job. And she was asked to comment about something Trump said that echoed the language of Hitler. But this pattern of Republicans turning a blind eye is one we've seen again and again. They've always come back to Trump, no matter what, no matter what kind of damage he inflicts on the party and the country. The difference now is they're gambling our future on a would-be dictator, and they're too dug in to ever reverse course. They don't seem like they want to. Congressman Adam Schiff is standing by, and he joins me next. We'll get him to weigh in on some stunning revelations tonight out of Fulton County, Georgia, as well. We'll be right back. We have breaking news tonight out of the election interference case in Georgia. ABC News has obtained video from interviews held with two of Trump's co-defendants, who already have already pled guilty and cut deals with Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. In one of those interviews, former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis describes a conversation she had with one of Trump's top aides and social media manager Dan Scavino in mid-December of 2020. I uh, emphasized him. I thought that the... Um the, the claims and the ability to challenge 
uh, the election results was essentially over. And he said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California. He served on the House January 6th committee. He's a member of the Judiciary Committee, and he's now a candidate for the U.S. Senate. So, Congressman, I, I think it's safe to say that Jenna Ellis wasn't exactly forthcoming in her deposition with the January 6th committee. If I were you, that would be very maddening. But now she says she was told that Trump would not leave the White House under any circumstances. How do you think prosecutors will use that testimony? Well, I think they will use it uh, very powerfully. Uh, and you know, I have to say, it, it just shocks you uh, to listen to that testimony. Uh, even though we knew Donald Trump engaged in this multi-pronged effort to overturn the election involving pressure campaigns against state legislators, involving a fake elector plot, and ultimately the violence on January 6th, but to hear in such cold-blooded terms mm -hmm. that the boss, Donald Trump, isn't going to leave. Uh, it doesn't matter that there's no legal basis to stay. He isn't going to leave. We have never heard those words from a president of the United States in our history. Many others have run for re-election and lost. They have never tried to cling to power. They have never said the election doesn't matter. I'm not leaving until Donald Trump. Uh, and I think that's going to be very powerful testimony. It shows why uh, this investigation in Georgia and these plea agreements are going to produce some really powerful evidence. It's such an important reminder. We've also seen in new reporting that he thought he was going back for months and months after and was trying to go back. It's all still shocking. I did want to ask you about those plea agreements because Jenna Ellis, obviously, we've known for a while that she struck a plea agreement. There's been these big questions, of course, about what this pressure, now hearing that testimony, too, it raises the question again, does to other defendants, especially people like Rudy Giuliani. I mean, what do you think as they watch this? If Rudy, Rudy Giuliani is watching, how does it impact him? Well, I think uh, many of these uh, folks that have already pled, uh, they were kind of doing a race to the courthouse to get the best deal they could get. Now others, seeing what these witnesses are saying, uh, are probably realizing, hey, if I'm going to get a deal, I better get a deal quick. Uh, I don't think there's going to be much of a deal to be had uh, for Rudy Giuliani unless he's willing to plead to some pretty serious charges. Uh, but I, I have to think that all of uh, the other indicted members of this conspiracy are starting to think, hey, the evidence is really piling up. People are starting to talk. Uh, what does this mean to me? And in those circumstances, uh, it's every man and woman for themselves. They're going to look out to do what keeps them out of jail or reduces their sentence. Uh, so this is pretty powerful stuff. Maybe running to the courthouse, more of them. I want to turn to news out of the Supreme Court today, which was just, they just adopted a formal code of ethics for the first time in its history, but one that seems to have a zero enforcement mechanism. Do you think that this code of ethics is good enough to restore public trust? You've been calling for them to do something like this for a while, but what do you think looking at it? Uh, no, this is uh, nowhere near enough to do uh, justice to people's concerns about the court. Uh, frankly, I think we need to expand the court. We need to term limit the court. But as far as a code of ethics is concerned, a code of ethics with no enforcement mechanism is no code of ethics at all. Uh, it is essentially just window dressing. Uh, it allows them to make the claim that they're bound by some code. 
But if there's no way to enforce it, if there's no one to investigate it, if there's no repercussion for violating it, then it's, it's a pretty uh, worthless code. And so they're going to have to do better than that. Uh, I think Congress uh, ought to move forward with its own code of ethics imposed on the Supreme Court, because uh, otherwise we're just going to see more of the same. And indeed, when you read between the lines of this code of ethics, it bends over backwards to try to explain and excuse everything the justices have done. It also seems to say, we're not doing anything new here. This is the same code we've always operated under. Well, if this is the same code they've always operated under, it hasn't worked up till now, and it's not likely to work in the future. It refers to the past as kind of a misunderstanding, I mean, which which is just ludicrous, as you've been, we've all been watching this very closely. I also want to ask you about some of Donald Trump's increasingly authoritarian rhetoric, because it's just so important to keep talking about this. I mean, he is echoing language used by Hitler um, and Mussolini. His campaign seems to be doubling down on that. A lot of Republicans, most Republicans, are, are frankly quiet, silent on this. I mean, Ronald McDaniel refused to even comment on it. What do you think that is? Is it fear? Is it plan is it they want Trump to get reelected? Do you think they agree with him? What what is, can you attribute it to? Uh, you know, it's fear uh, and it's cowardice. Uh, these uh, you know elected officials, uh, you know that I serve with in Congress, the Republicans that are still behind Trump. They know exactly what he is. Uh, how can you listen to that testimony out of Georgia uh, that the president sought to remain in power, uh, notwithstanding having lost, uh, and still support someone like that? Um, but they're afraid. Uh, they see that, you know, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, mm -hmm. they stood up for their principles. Uh, they exposed the danger, and they were forced out of Congress. Uh, and, you know, for Liz and Adam, there was something more important than continued service in Congress, and it was, you know, it was the Constitution. Uh, it was their own character. But for all too many, those things don't matter quite so much as holding their office or maybe getting a better office one day. So it's fear and it's cowardice and it's, and it's craven uh, and it's putting the country at grave risk to even contemplate uh, electing someone who will cling to power the way Donald Trump t tried who embraces the mm -hmm. language of dictators, uh, tries to dehumanize the opposition, calling them vermin, just like Hitler and Mussolini. Um, you know, when someone like that tells you what they're going to do, and he's telling us he's going to weaponize the Justice Department and won't leave power again, and not without uh, even more of a fight, you need to listen to them, and you certainly can't put them anywhere near the levers of power again. You better listen. He's telling us exactly what he's doing. Uh, quite a way to end. Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining me this evening. Coming up, we are, why are white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups popping up at pro-Palestinian rallies across America? One of the lawyers who sued the white supremacists responsible for the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, back in 2017, joins me to answer that question coming up next. The war between Israel and Hamas has sparked protests across the United States. Tomorrow, a large pro-Israel rally will be held at the steps of the U.S. Capitol, with up to 100,000 people expected to attend, according to organizers. Of course, we've also seen a number of massive pro-Palestinian protests in cities and on college campuses over the last month. And now, bad-faith actors, in particular neo-Nazis, are showing up at pro-Palestinian protests to stoke hatred and provoke violence. It's all eerily similar to 2017, when white supremacists marched in Charlottesville chanting, Jews cannot replace us. 
And now Karen Dunn, one of the lawyers who successfully sued the white supremacists responsible for the violence in Charlottesville, has an ominous warning in a new op-ed for MSNBC.com. She writes, quote, it is important that our college campuses, cities and town squares be places for speech, debate and prote protest, all rightfully protected under our Constitution. But we should not tolerate anti-Semitism anywhere, not only because it is morally wrong, but also because for a growing white supremacist movement, it is a mechanism to rally the troops against all non-white groups and usher in what Richard Spencer once called a new world of political violence. Joining me now is Karen Dunn. She's now the co-chair of the litigation department at the law firm Paul Weiss. Karen is featured in the HBO original documentary, No Accident, which if you're interested in this, you should watch it. It's a huge wake-up call. It's about the civil lawsuit against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Karen, thank you so much for joining me and for writing this, too. I just want to start with, because I think when people hear this, they're like, wait, what? Why are white supremacists showing up at these pro-Palestinian rallies? What do they want out of this? Well, overall, Jen, and thanks for having me, uh, what they want is they want an all-white ethnostate in North America. And as crazy as that sounds, that's actually an articulated goal of the neo-Nazi and white supremacist movement in the U.S. And one of the things that helps them rally the troops uh, is anti-Semitism. So now in the U.S. we're experiencing a massive uptick in anti-Semitism. Incidents are up something like 388 percent. And the white supremacists, neo-Nazi groups see an opportunity to advance some of the same themes, some of the same anti-Semitic tropes that they've been plugging away at for years. You talk in your op-ed a lot about how there's shadows of Charlottesville yeah. back from back in 2017, which, you know, is a, was a horrifying moment in our history, and how these white supremacists and neo-Nazis are trying to take advantage of passions on college campuses. I'll also add, there are many, many, tens of thousands, if not more, people who are protesting civilian casualties and on behalf of the, what they're seeing happen. Yeah. But they're trying to take advantage of that. Why are they targeting college campuses? Yeah. So. Um, it might help if we go back to 2017. Yeah. So in 2017, uh, everyone saw what happened in Charlottesville, but what they didn't know is that um, what was referred to as Unite the Right publicly was referred to privately on chat rooms as the Battle of Charlottesville. Mm. And it was inspired by an event earlier that year at Berkeley called the Battle of Berkeley. And the reason that college campuses were targeted was it was a place where it was easy to attract counter-protesters, in that case, uh, left-leaning liberal counter-protesters, and then provoke violence. And the point of provoking violence is that the theory is, in order to have an all-white ethnostate in North America, you need to have a race war. And to have a race war, you have to have battles. And so we had the Battle of Charlottesville and the Battle of Berkeley, and that was intended really to be just the beginning. So you sued <laughs> the organizers of this uh, of the Charlottesville horrific events. What do you think, as we're, as we're watching this happen now, what can we learn from that? What should people know uh, that we can trace to address what's happening now? Yeah, well, the most important takeaway is that um, what started in Charlottesville with Jews will not replace us turned into extremist violence against all non-white groups. And obviously, one woman was murdered. Uh, many others were grievously injured. And an entire city was rocked. Mm -hmm. Uh, terrorized, and, you know, the nation woke up to that. Uh, and so the key thing to recognize is anti-Semitism, wherever it is, is fuel for the white nationalist movement, fuel for the neo-Nazi movement. And so to the extent that we are allowing this to fester, to become uh, more inflamed, and 
you know, seeding these divisions, we're offering really an opportunity to groups that intend to do all of us harm, not just Jews, all of us. So there are many people, as I mentioned, out there who are hurting, who are horrified by what they're seeing happening in Gaza. Yeah. They may want to join a peaceful protest. What should they do? Uh, you know, how do they kind of avoid being aligned, not intentionally, with these neo-Nazi groups? Right. I think the key is awareness. And so that's one of the reasons um, I'm glad that they made a movie about our case in Charlottesville called No Accident. Thanks for talking about mm -hmm. it. Um, I think it is a wake-up call that you can have peaceful protest, um, but there are people who seek to take advantage of just the rise in racial hatred. And I think the more that we are aware that these forces exist, that they're coordinated, that they're communicating, that they are incredibly tactical, right? The use of anti-Semitism is tactical. It's, it's not an accident, right? So I, I do think that people need to be aware um, and not tolerate it. I think if you come for a peaceful protest and there are neo-Nazis there, you know, it is good for everybody not to tolerate that because that's going to be bad for everybody and lead very likely to more extremist violence in the United States. There's a lot of language that's used out there. And I, I want to, you've been very outspoken about anti-Semitism, which is on the rise in the country. Is there language you hear that you think that is breaking my heart, I wish people wouldn't say that. And, and maybe it's not done intentionally, maybe they don't know the history that you wish people wouldn't repeat. Yeah, well, there's the language that really, for me, um, it's just so reminiscent of what, what led up to Charlottesville. Um, there, I mean, there are phrases I probably can't say on your air, but there is a phrase constantly repeated, gas the Jews, but they didn't say Jews, they used a, a ethnic slur. Um, Hearing these phrases that are the same phrases that led to the violence in Charlottesville that was used to, um, you know, unify the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement, that, those are the things that, for me, I find so alarming because I know what the end of the story looks like. Karen Dunn, thank you so much for joining me for writing this. That does it for me tonight. The Rachel Maddow Show starts right now. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.